Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tim Talks Politics Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Before we dive into the topic for this episode, I want to bring your attention to a couple of things. Uh, First, again, my apologies for missing last week. Usually I try to schedule an episode every two weeks. I missed last week, not because I was not recording a podcast. It's just I wasn't recording this podcast. I made a guest appearance on another podcast, which I'll be Uh, dropping an announcement on once I have more information on when it goes live. So you can be looking for that. If you enjoyed the discussion last time on U.S.-China relations, you'll like this one because that's what we were talking about, U.S.-China relations. So you can go a little further on that one. The second announcement that I have to make is for those of you who might not know, I actually have a newsletter uh, for listeners and subscribers. Uh, It's called The Weekly Brief. Uh, If you're interested in getting a deeper dive on the stories and narratives and information and research being done on some of the topics that I'm talking about on the podcast, I highly recommend The Weekly Brief to you. It's a subscriber, uh, subscription-based newsletter. Uh, You can get it at timtalkspolitics.substack.com. Substack is the uh, is the email newsletter platform I'm using to produce and send out the uh, newsletter. Uh, it comes out on a weekly basis. And recently, I just added a monthly brief. So there's a weekly brief that goes out to subscribers. And then there's a monthly brief that's free and accessible to everybody in which I kind of take a deep dive on the reporting and research being done on a particular topic that I cover in my weekly newsletters. So if you want to get a sense of kind of what a topic is looking at like a across a broad variety of uh, information sources uh, that I highly recommend you uh, take it, give it a look and subscribe. And right now, uh, for a limited time, over the course of the summer, uh, listeners of podcasts get a 30% discount on the subscription price of the uh, of the newsletter. So you can go ahead and check it out and you can, I'll put the link for the discount in the show notes. But if you want to go there now, it's timtalkspolitics.substack.com backslash podcast. That's timtalkspolitics.substack.com backslash podcast. Okay, let's dive into the topic for today. So we're going to follow a similar format to what I did for episode 15 with the discussion on China. Now we're going to be looking at another country that America has, well, rather fraught relations with, and that is the country of Iran. Uh, This is moving a little closer to my region of the world in which I have a lot deeper expertise than uh, than Asia. This is the Middle East. Uh, Iran is the country that uh, has posed probably one of the most enduring problems uh, for American policymakers uh, for about 40 years now. Uh, The Ayatollahs that govern Iran uh, celebrated their 40th anniversary last year in 2019, uh, having dethroned the Shah in 1979 in a uh, in a coup revolution, whatever you want to call it, but essentially a revolution uh, overthrew the Shah that had been an American ally and instigated a period of upheaval and confrontation in America's relations with 
the ancient country of Persia. Uh, yes, Iran is uh, known also as Persia. It was actually officially called Persia up until the 20th century when it changed its name to Iran. Uh, so if you have heard of the Persian civilization, this is uh, this is that country. And so like China, uh, Iran is also a modern, you might say, a modern nation state that's built on top of a, of a foundation of a very ancient civilization with a long and storied history and also numerous contributions uh, to the world as well. And so what we'll do for this podcast is I will kind of break it down according to similar to what I do with the China podcast. We'll take a first a look at U.S. Uh, Iran relations from the American perspective, and then we'll try to piece out some things from the Iranian perspective before moving on to kind of a broader consideration over just what are some of the major issues and challenges that face the, uh, the two countries as they seek to navigate not just a very difficult relationship, but also seek to navigate a difficult relationship in the context of a very difficult region, namely the Middle East. If you want more information on America's foreign relations and interaction with the Middle East, you can check out the podcasts I've done on that. I'll post those links in the show notes as well. Okay, so let's talk about America and its involvement and engagement with Iran. So like America's involvement in the Middle East, American-Iranian relations largely a post-World War II uh, thing. Uh, it's not that America wasn't engaged with Iran, wasn't connecting with Iran, then called Persia. It was just that there were larger colonial powers that were more interested in Iran and had a vested interest in the country prior to World War II. And those two countries were Britain, go figure. I mean, they were the world's leading empire at the time, but also Russia. Uh, the Russian uh, czars had a abiding interest in Persia. And geopolitically, Russia and Great Britain were the two rivals that vied for influence uh, in the uh, the Persian court. It was what was called in the 19th century, the great game, uh, because uh, Iran was seen as essentially like a geopolitical chessboard for Britain and and Russian diplomats to vie for influence and uh, power. Of course, the discovery of oil in the Middle East, and not to mention a lot of oil in Iran, only heightened Iran's value as a as a potential ally, potential partner for world powers uh, seeking global influence. This takes us to World War II, and in fact, one of the last uh, one of the last major meetings between the Allied heads of state, Stalin, Churchill, uh, and and Roosevelt uh, actually happened in Tehran. There was a conference there, and they actually met there to discuss strategy on fighting World War II and everything like that. After World War II, a couple of interesting things happened. First, Great Britain was losing its empire, and not just its empire, but also its influence in large corners of the world, including Iran. Secondly, America was seeking to take that role over from Britain uh, in terms of its influence. Iran offered an early test case in terms of how America and Britain would essentially work to influence world events where Britain was handing off its kind of its record, its power, its influence, or just kind of its checklist of things to accomplish off to the United States. After World War II, 
there was a push for more democratic representation in Iran. Iran was ruled by the Pahlavi family. Uh, they were a dynasty. They were the, also known as the Shah, uh, essentially the monarch. Uh, and that monarchy had become unfortunately, fairly well known for its corruption, for its putting down of uh, opposition. And there was a growing chorus of protest from the Iranian people, from Iranian civil society, that called for greater democratic representation, specifically in the General Assembly. So you had kind of this move to uh, more democratic expression, uh, but that democratic expression was given an increasing voice by one of the parliamentary leaders named Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh saw British influence and with it, and Russian influence for that matter, at that time, the Soviet Union, as basically preventing Iran from achieving its destiny as an independent nation state. So he was very pro-Iranian sovereignty. And hence, he was also anti-imperialist. Well, the great symbol of British imperialism in Iran was the uh, oil company. I, I probably should have done a little extra research on this to look up what the exact name of it was, but long story short, because it doesn't really um, play a big role here, Mossadegh moved to nationalize the petroleum industry, and with that came a British oil company. The attempt to nationalize the oil industry essentially led to a uh, led to a series of riots, a series of uh, a, a series of confrontations between Mossadegh and his supporters and the supporters of the Shah, who were also happened to be uh, supported by British and uh, American agents. And so, in a flurry of you might say revolutionary activity, uh, Mossadegh was deposed. Uh, the Shah was entrenched and British, but then increasingly American influence going forward was ensured. Okay, that was a real whirlwind description on how America landed kind of in the place of Great Britain as the power of influence in Iran. Well, that, uh, that Western influence in Iran was growing parallel to the kind of wave of Islamic fundamentalism that had been essentially sweeping across uh, the Muslim world, especially in the Middle East, for uh, most of the 20th century up to that point. So the view that British and American intelligence agencies had some role to play in basically pulling the political strings in Britain to ensure that uh, Mossadegh's moves to nationalize the oil industry were foiled and in, and to entrench the Shah, who was a dictator, uh, gave the religious leders who go down, you know, are known to us now as the Ayatollahs, uh, gave one of their revolutionary revolutionary leaders, Ayatollah Khomeini, a um, kind of a ready audience, a listening ear. And so from his exile abroad, he began... Um, calling for the removal of the Shah, agitating for a return to, uh, to a Islamic, um, Islamic Iran, 
And eventually, again, long story short, compressing a lot of details, in 1979, we have the Iranian Revolution where the Shah is deposed and Ayatollah Khomeini returns from exile and essentially becomes the supreme leader of Iran. Now, this revolutionary moment in Iran brings a lot of upheaval. Uh, America is quickly labeled the great Satan. Israel is the little Satan. And essentially, it just reverses everything that had been done by the Shah in terms of diplomacy and foreign relations. Uh, the Shah had actually worked closely with the United States, worked closely with Israel. And those two countries were now seen as not just uh, not just unfriendly, but enemies, enemies to be confronted, enemies to be fought, enemies to be, in the case of Israel specifically, enemies to be destroyed. So that kicks off essentially 40 years of confrontation between Iran and the United States and Israel uh, too. And the Ayatollahs of Iran have been unwavering in their uh, promotion of that confrontation. And with it, the idea of kind of a, um, kind of a Shiite revolu uh, Islamic revolution that they have then worked to export. They've worked to export it uh, through the support of uh, Shiite fundamentalist parties like Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is now a political uh, entity in that country, uh, through the uh, exportation and support of terrorist organizations across the Middle East. Uh, this is something that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, has become uh, increasingly known for. Uh, and this has basically created a policy of terrorism and uh, exported violence in many respects uh, across the region. So today, there's hardly a conflict within the region that Iran or Iranian-backed and trained militants don't have some hand in, whether it's uh, seeking to control uh, events in Iraq, its Shiite neighbor to the west, whether it's seeking to control uh, politics in Lebanon through Hezbollah and foment confrontation with Israel through the northern uh, border with uh, Lebanon. And also fighting and supporting the longtime ally of Iran, the um, the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. On top of that, you also have support for the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So Iran has its fingers in a lot of pies throughout the region, uh, primarily through the funding and supporting of militants and terrorist organizations. Okay. America could probably have lived with a revolutionary Iran. I've even been able to negotiate with them to a certain degree. It wouldn't have been the first difficult regime America has had to work with as its history of interacting with difficult or despotic regimes throughout the Cold War demonstrates. But it was the Iranian government's more or less encouraged, but surely supported, uh, um, takeover of the American embassy in Tehran in 1979 that essentially kickstarted the Iranian uh, hostage crisis of over a year and essentially was the quasi-declaration of, uh, of a barely cold war between the two countries. At this point, I should pause and note 
kind of the size of Iran. Because on the one hand, Iran is a much weaker and smaller country than the United States. In a shooting war, the two countries, if they were to go head to head, Iran would probably be worsted and probably be worsted pretty emphatically. So a lot of people, especially more hawkish types, often wonder, well, why doesn't America just go to war and get it over with? depose the Ayatollahs and get done. But what they don't realize is that Iran's actually a really big country. Uh, It's several times larger than most of the countries of the Middle East region, countries that America has been used to operating in militarily. Uh, It it has a much uh, more advanced and well-equipped and trained military than America has been um, fighting in uh, in other wars of recent decades. So Iran's not, even though Iran's a weaker country, it's not exactly a easy nut to crack. And that would be a great challenge to him. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we kind of get down to the debate over how best to approach Iran. So that's, that's kind of like historical backing. Um, but essentially what you need to know, if I were to just kind of take that all up and tie it off with a bow, is there's a 40-year history of bad blood uh, between these two countries. And it's uh, it's bad blood that both have contributed to at different points in time. And so there's a pretty set story about Iran that Americans can tell, especially American policymakers. And there, and in this, there's a large amount of agreement among American policymakers on how to approach Iran or how to think about Iran. In general, American policymakers agree that Iran is a pariah country. It poses a threat to American allies in the region, and it poses a potential nuclear threat globally. So some kind of containment policy is required. Now, that's where the agreement lies when it comes to viewing Iran and thinking about how America should posture itself towards Iran. But then this is where disagreement starts to enter into the mix, is that idea of some kind of containment, just what kind of containment it becomes uh, more of the debate. So, for example, uh, in during the Barack Obama administration, they worked really hard to get some kind of uh, nuclear accord negotiated with the uh, with the Iranian government, and this led to the JCPOA. I think it's, that stands for Joint Comprehension Plan of Action. Um, check me on that. Don't quote me on it. But it's called the JCPOA. It's also called the Iran Nuclear Deal, and it was basically this. Uh, this attempt to stall a development of nuclear infrastructure that could be used to develop a nuclear weapon, which has been a long-stated policy of the Iranian government. The argument was that this was what was needed to, at the very least, buy time uh, to have more good faith efforts to negotiate, to kind of draw down and step back from any kind of development of a nuclear weapon. The nuclear deal, while it was supported by European uh, allies, it was not supported by American Middle Eastern allies, particularly Israel and Saudi Arabia. So there was this division on how effective the deal would be. So when the Trump administration came into office, uh, Trump during the campaign made no secret that he hated the deal, thought it was terrible. And the big critique of the deal was that it did not do enough to push back against Iran's malign influence in the region, particularly its support of militants and terrorist organizations. So true to his word, Trump, within a year or so of coming into office, steps America out of the deal, just backs out of the JCPOA. 
Part of the JCPOA was sanctions relief. So pretty much for the last several decades, uh, Iran has had to deal with some level of economic sanctions from the United States that have really hampered their growth as an economy. It's usually contributed to uh, preventing the development and expansion of their oil industry, which would easily be one of their biggest exports where there are not to be any sanctions. And so the efficacy of sanctions now became a major discussion piece. Uh, sanctions relief were sanctions were clearly having a Im- negative impact and acting as a break on the Iranian economy. So sanctions relief was a big part of the JCPOA. Kind of Iran limits its uh, nuclear activities, focuses them on developing nuclear energy for you know electricity and things of that nature, civilian use as it's often referred to. And in return, they get some sanctions relief from the United States and can further grow their economy. Well, the argument was from critics of the deal was lifting sanctions and allowing Iran to grow their economy only gives them more money to fund their uh, terrorist activities in the region, since there were no limits or expectations placed on that. So that's uh, so Trump. The Trump administration's argument was that's a bad deal. So as soon as we pulled back out of the JCPOA, we put a heavy amount of sanctions back on Iran. And part of this was, from the Trump administration's perspective, an effort to push back Iranian influence in the region, particularly in Syria, uh, Iraq, and elsewhere. And of course, this you could say this escalated to a point of, uh, in January of this year, January 2020, the, uh, the American military launched a drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani, uh, a general in charge of the Iranian Revolutionary or rather the Quds Force, uh, the major major entity that does militant training and terrorist uh, support um, around the region. So that looked like it was going to be a much more militarized uh, approach to confronting Iranian influence in the region. And it looked like things were going to escalate. And believe it or not, I'll bring you right to the present moment, even in the midst of a uh, global pandemic that has rocked the Iranian uh, country and economy as much as it's rocked anywhere else. In fact, Iran's been one of the hardest hit countries. Uh, even there, there's been confrontations between Iranian gunboats and U.S. naval vessels in the Persian Gulf and Straits of Hormuz. Uh, there was a war of words that escalated last month. Uh, I'm recording this in May, so this would have been in April. A uh, war of words between Trump and the Iranian government. Uh, basically Trump threatening to attack any Iranian gunboat that came within range of American naval vessels and Iranians more or less responding in kind. Nothing came of it. There was no shooting that we know of between uh, the two uh, the two groups. But to say that tensions are at a high pitch would be an understatement. So that's kind of the overview and debate of how America approaches Iran right now. Uh, Iran is a essentially a problem to be addressed, but there is debate over how best to address that problem. Uh, backers of the Iran nuclear deal argue for using that as a basically as a foundation for further development and further um, further, I guess, good faith efforts. Um, but the Trump administration sees that as being, and other critics of the JCPOA, JCPOA I might add, uh, see that as being giving too much to a country that has done too much damage in the region. So let's flip the coin a bit and consider how might Iran be viewing uh, America? Well, similar to China, there's a bit of a, 
I guess you could say inferiority complex here. They know they're smaller. They know they're weaker. Uh, the big difference between Iran and China, though, is that China sees itself as a world power and it seeks to compete with America on equal terms as world powers. Iran, for its part, though, uh, recognizes that it's a smaller country, but definitely sees itself certainly as being a regional power, a regional hegemon, and therefore willing, ready, and able to push back against what they see as the big dog in the neighborhood, which in this case is the United States. Uh, from the perspective of revolutionary Iran and revolutionary leaders of Iran, America is seen as the great Satan. Coincidentally, Israel is called the little Satan, right? This is how the revolutionary government and revolutionary leaders, the old guard, see America. It is the country to be shunned and fought and pushed and needled as much as possible up to the point of war. And that's a really significant point here. Like I said, Iran knows it's weaker than America. So how is a weak entity supposed to combat a great Satan? Uh, well, the strategy that revolutionary Iran has settled on is one of asymmetric conflict, basically pushing the envelope on conflict and making it costly for America to maintain its foreign policy and regional alliances in the Middle East, uh, but never pushing America all the way to a point where America is willing to go to war. Uh, with Iran. So it's always just this kind of like low grade conflict that's just just below the surface. And that's something that and that's one of the reasons that it feels like it's a problem that Iran's a problem that doesn't go away is it's a low level conflict that is never quite bad enough for America to engage its full focus and uh, forces. And it's never too and the consequences are never too expensive for Iran to get them to desist. So it's a carefully calibrated uh, dance. And so on the one hand, the upside is you don't have a general war breakout across the region. The downside is the problem never really goes away. And to a certain degree, that's kind of how Iran wants it. That's kind of how the Ayatollahs would like it, because it allows them in their minds to build their legitimacy by showing that they can confront the great saint in America. But on the other hand, it doesn't completely ruin them. Now, that might be shifting a little bit because Iran is a country that is diverse in its political thought, its political experience, and in its civil society. So for so I know I keep no, noting that there's a revolutionary Iran, but there's also kind of what I would call a Main Street Iran. The revolutionary Iran is the old guard. They're the people who brought about the overthrow of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollahs. But there's also this kind of more uh, slightly more secularized, uh, more moderate civil society, this what I call Main Street Iran that kind of pre-exists the Ayatollahs and hasn't has never really gone away. There's a very healthy a civil society that is that is used to and is willing to protest. And in fact, uh, early this year, as first Qasem Soleimani was killed and then COVID-19 hit, uh, protests and pushback against Iranian efforts to influence the region and throw Iranian money and military might around the region uh, actually came under fire and criticism, not from other countries like the United States, but from Iranian people themselves. Uh, in many cases, going so far as to chant, you know, death to the Ayatollahs. And so that's very, um, that's a shift. That's very significant. It doesn't mean that 
the Iranian revolutionary government, the Ayatollahs, is on the verge of collapsing. It does mean, though, that there are some significant gaps within the Iranian nation over what the best political policy and what the best foreign policy is for the country going forward. So there's this kind of mixed perspective. Now, you shouldn't also take the assumption from this that just because there's protests against the Iranian government, that those Iranians who are protesting are automatically supportive or pro-American. They are pro-Iranian. They're pro-Iranian democracy, uh, etc. Are they going to be more moderate towards the United States? Probably. Are they going to be an instant ally of the United States? Probably not. Remember that the democratic history of Iran uh, is closely connected to a perspective that Britain and America kind of hamstrung that effort, kind of uh, kind of hijacked it. And so there's a degree of skepticism and suspicion, maybe not towards American culture and American people, but certainly towards uh, American government, American politics, the American um, standing in the world. So that's one of the most significant elements that often gets missed in the traditional American coverage uh, in the media of Iran. Iran is often perceived as just this singular revolutionary government led by the Ayatollahs. It's very rarely that we get this perspective of Iran as being a country that is diverse in its in its organization, in its civil society, in its ability and willingness to push back against the revolutionary government, uh, etc. But that's a gap that's becoming more evident and more obvious. There's clearly growing frustration with the Ayatollahs and the way they've run their country. And there's clearly growing frustration with a kind of like constant promotion of upheaval, constant promotion of confrontation uh, with the United States. And so that leads us to the debate that's going on currently uh, in the United States among policymakers and experts about how to address Iran. And the best way I saw that debate is the question, to change or not to change? What are we changing? Well, namely, it's the regime. In a recent article for Foreign Affairs, Eric Edelman and Ray Taki made a rather provocative argument by arguing that the policy of the United States towards Iran needs to stop uh, essentially vacillating between confrontation and accommodation. Their argument essentially was that America needs to adopt a strategy and foreign policy towards Iran of regime change. Now, that's a really charged phrase because during the George W. Bush administration, the idea of regime change immediately entailed ideas of military engagement, invasion, massive outlays of military manpower and resources, huge amounts of money. Uh, it just is incredibly expensive. Adelman and Taki made the argument, though, based more or less on some of the analysis I shared already, that Iran is not the type of country that America is just going to invade. So regime change is not towards Iran is not going to be the same as regime change towards, say, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Their argument was that regime change needs to be framed as this approach where the Ayatollahs need to go. Now, how the Ayatollahs go 
how that government is removed and a new government, a more democratic government, something that, like I said earlier, Ron has historical experience with, you know, how that comes about. Well, that's not exactly something that's going to be driven by the United States. More, uh, according to Edelman, Taki, it's more, it'll be supported by the United States. So what this means is maybe a policy of identifying actors both within Iran and among the uh, you know, generally influential uh, ex- exilic and expatriate Iranian community in the United States, uh, whether it's through uh, supporting regional um, allies to push back Iranian uh, efforts to undermine security in the region. Uh, but from the article, the argument was essentially that there needs to be a unifying concept behind America's approach to Iran, and that and that needs to be focused on changing the government there, since the I, regime of the Ayatollahs is more or less the main sticking point, more or less the regime that has essentially soured and destroyed American Iranian relations for 40 years. That's a real nutshell view of the argument, and I'll post the link to the article uh, in the show notes so that you can give it a closer read. But essentially, the big debate in American foreign policy right now is more than just do we get back into the JCPOA or do we stay out of it? It's more along the lines of wanting to reach some kind of conclusive decision on how America is going to approach Iran. And a lot of this stems from an even bigger uh, strategic argument taking place in American foreign policy forums, and that is the need to have some kind of American grand strategy when it comes to foreign policy, kind of a organizing principle. And so from the perspective of those who would support regime change of a kind, as Edelman and Taki seem to support, the idea is that a regime change policy is at least something that touches on what is agreed upon in American foreign policy when it comes to Iran, that it is a pariah country, that it is outside uh, the global system and seeks to undermine it. And so therefore it needs to be confronted and contained. Uh, But they also point to essentially the intuitive point, which is how long can that be sustained? We may as well aim for an objective. Simple containment is not an objective is essentially kind of that, uh, that viewpoint, that argument. And that's more or less where things stand. This becomes very interesting in an election year, especially when you have two candidates who more or less represent the two sides of the argument over Iranian policy. For his part, Trump is continuing to push a more confrontational policy with Iran, while Vice President Joe Biden, the the presumptive Democratic nominee, is very much in favor of going back to the JCPOA or at least trying to get back to the negotiation table with the Ayatollahs. Considering the Ayatollahs have more or less signaled that they're pulling out of the JCPOA as well, it'll be interesting to see if, were he to win, Biden could even pull that off. But this is where Edelman and Takeya's argument, I think, is helpful to consider, is because agreements like the JCPOA come and go. They can be changed with every turn of a administration. What Edelman and Takeya argue for more is kind of a at least principle of foreign policy, a principle of regime change that can embody a lot of different policy approaches, but still keep 
kind of keep the ball moving the same direction down the field towards a given objective. So we'll see how that plays. We'll see how how much purchase such a provocative claim um, has in the foreign policy realm, in the foreign policy arena. And I think that'll be very interesting once we see the uh, once we see presidential debates get going, once we see the election kind of start in earnest after the summer conventions. But for, for purposes of this podcast and for the conversation going forward, uh, maybe that's something for us to consider here. How do you think America should respond to an enemy that also happens to be a weak country? Is regime change a possible policy that America could support in the case of Iran? Or is it too easy uh, for regime change to become military invasion and military overthrow? And in which case should that be something we're steering away from? You know, what would a sustainable regime change policy look like? Uh, is another way of putting that question. How can we ensure that a regime change policy does not kick over into uh, full-on war and military occupation, which would not be constructive and would not be uh, a helpful thing either for the United States or for the Iranian people? So how do you uh, how do you pursue, if we were to kind of like buy Edelman and Taki's argument, how do you pursue such a essentially confrontational policy vis-a-vis Iran without going to kind of the ultimate stage of confrontation, which is all-out war. That is going to be the puzzling question that keeps American foreign policy makers up at night uh, in the near future. So a couple of uh, helpful pieces that I have for you. I'll include these in the show notes. I already noted Edelman and Taki's uh, article. I'll add that in the show notes. But then I also came across a a helpful timeline of U.S.-Iran relations that runs all the way up until January of this year when everything got sidetracked by COVID. But it's produced uh, by PBS uh, as part of the NewsHour. And it was a really useful way of seeing kind of just how long America's been involved with Iran, how much engagement there has been, and certainly uh, from the days of the Iranian revolution to now, how much confrontation there's been. It gives you a lot of good context uh, to frame this discussion with, and I think it gives you a lot of good context that is uh, often lacking in the general reporting on Iran and America's interactions with it. So I'll include those two articles in the show notes, uh, along with, as I noted earlier, the link to the weekly brief, my weekly newsletter of world events in American uh, domestic politics and in that link will also be embedded uh, the discount that podcast listeners can get by uh, signing up uh, during the summer months here. So hopefully you sign up, hopefully you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. I'll see you next time. We'll be talking about another uh, country that America has fraught relations with. We'll be talking about U.S. relations with Russia. So hope to have you back for that conversation. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics podcast.